Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is exercise physiologist, Dr. Phil Batterson. Phil is an avid endurance athlete himself and recently received his PhD in human bioenergetics from Oregon State University, where his primary focus was studying mitochondria and how exercise remodels our mitochondria, which is the perfect area of concentration to dive into our subject today, which is fatigue. What is fatigue? Why do we get fatigued? What can we do to improve our fatigue resistance as endurance athletes? which is kind of like the number one focus of most training cycles. How can I go for longer? How can I go faster for longer? How can I keep getting better? Primarily has to do with your ability to improve your resistance to fatigue. We're gonna talk about all of that today, but before we get started, do not forget, While I know these podcast episodes are jam-packed full of information, I know a ton of you find extreme benefit just from listening and applying some of the things that you learn in your own training. If you're looking for actual training plans, training support, training guidance, or for a deep dive on specific topics about how to train specifically for your race, Running Explained, I got you covered. Whether you're looking for a self-coached option, that will be training plus programs. I call it for the, I got this. I'll let you know if I got a question or two in my coaching consult. Training Plus is for you. Ton of educational modules, training plan, heart rate zones, masterclass, and a 30 minute coaching consult with me just to touch base, answer any questions that you might have. Group coaching, that next level of support, fortnightly one hour group coaching calls with me, Coach Elizabeth, plus a training plan, plus your educational modules, plus the Heart Rate Zones Masterclass. And then, of course, the highest level of support that we offer 100% personalized, individualized, one on one run coaching. We have a couple spots left on our coaching roster with some of the coaches on my team. So if you are looking to make the one-on-one coaching decision, don't wait. Spaces are filling up. And of course, if you are just looking for a training plan, well, I got you covered. 28, 29 different training plans available for you now for beginners to advanced marathoners and everything in between. Runningexplained.co is the place to find all of that. And without further ado, here's Phil. Dr. Phil Batterson, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks. I've been a fan of of you and uh, Running Explained for a really long time, actually. Probably one of the first accounts that I followed when I started making my Instagram account. So, I appreciate so I, that. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I, I like what you do, and, and I'm hoping that I can uh, help to enlighten some of your, your listeners and your followers today. Absolutely. So go ahead and tell us about you and your uh, academic professional background and about yourself as an athlete. Yeah, yeah. So I think... Um, my, my interest, I'll start with the athletics. So my interest in athletics started, uh, probably like seventh or eighth grade. Um, I, I wrestled for a little while and then, um, ran track and field in eighth grade. And somehow I, I had set my, my eighth grade track and field, you know, mile and two mile record. So of course, you know, like, you're like, oh, I, I, maybe I'm kind of good at this. Um, so I continued you know, within, uh, within high school to, to, to train a little bit, you know, like my, the, the coaches that I had and stuff, like they were kind of hands off until you got into season. Um, but it, it always, it always was one of those things where I was like, oh man, you know, I'm just as good as my buddy. 
um, you know, in eighth grade, but then he was making like leaps and bounds. He ended up running like a 412 mile uh, in high school. He's incredible. Um, and I, I, he's obviously got an amazing amount of talent, but I think too, it's, it was part of his coaching because I finally got, got it in my head. Like, Oh, maybe I need to run over the summer, you know, to be good at cross country. So I, I put in like 400 miles over the summer and I was running with him and I PR'd probably by like a minute and a half. I got my, my best time down to like mid sixteens um, in the 5k. So that again, kind of sparked my interest for like running and all of that. And I was like, Oh yes, like this is awesome. Like I love endurance sports. I, I wound up going to the university of Michigan actually for a degree in mechanical engineering. Um, weirdest thing. But, uh, during that time I rode on the Michigan rowing team, um, for one year and we, we, pretty successful with that, which is really fun, but had some back injuries. So then I transitioned into triathlon and I did an Ironman triathlon a year after that. Um, so it's all just about like endurance training or endurance sport for me is all just about pushing your, your, your mental and your physical limits. And, and it's just something I really love to do. Um, I did my Ironman on no knowledge of how to fuel, how to train or anything like that. So I got to the marathon in the Ironman and cramped up from my neck to, you know, my, my feet essentially. And it was super rough. And, you know, all of these, you know, all of these things kind of like, oh, maybe I need to start thinking about this a little bit more, like the training and the nutrition and all that. Um, so I graduated from from my undergrad, went down to Georgia for a little while and uh, didn't really like my job. So I pivoted to coaching high school and we were talking about this offline, but I ended up uh, coaching for a team where the uh, head coach was this amazing coach who's followed a lot of like the the v, Jack Daniels V dot uh, methodology and had a team that was successful enough to qualify for Nike Nationals and then we went uh, were, was able to go out to Portland so just like having that success I was like oh my gosh like this is so much fun like I really love like coaching the kids and all of that and so I was like I'm gonna go back to school and I'm gonna get a a, a master's degree in um, like physiology with the idea that I was gonna coach. Um, wound up, I'll, I'll make the story a little shorter, but I wound up running, um, for the community college team that I was taking classes. So I finally got to run in college, which was like kind of a life goal of mine at, at like the age of 24. So I was the old man on the team, but it was super fun, super rewarding. And then I, uh, started my master's degree out in Colorado and did it on the predictors of performance. So, uh, how we can use lab based variables like VO2 max efficiency and threshold in combination with each other to predict outcomes in endurance performance. And when I was there, I fell in love with uh, the, the energy producer of the cell, the mitochondria, because what we found was that the mitochondria and mitochondrial function was the single best predictor of endurance performance in our, in our athletes. Um, so then I got a position uh, at Oregon State University uh, as a researcher in a lab that does primarily um, research on how our skeletal muscle mitochondria respond to exercise and dietary interventions. So while I was here during my PhD, I was able to run some studies that looked at how high intensity interval training affects that, and then how uh, things like high fat diet induced obesity affect our mitochondria. So that was really like what I was digging into during my PhD. And now I'm I'm talking to you on this this podcast, and I'm hoping to you know start to educate like you know use my education to educate coaches and athletes on the physiological principles that are related to endurance performance and endurance adaptation. 
That is so cool. I'll just say first off. Um, and obviously one of the things that I strongly believe in is that, you know, if we really want to be successful in this sport, it helps to be educated about what is happening inside of our bodies when we are running or weightlifting or not getting enough sleep or we are getting enough sleep or we're not eating enough or we are eating enough, like all these things. Um, because for me, you know, it's, I, I know some people don't care, right? Some people are just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I don't really care to know the why I just, mm -hmm. I just know that I enjoy it. And you know, I, I, that's it. And there are a ton of people who, um, I find derive a great deal more enjoyment and satisfaction from the process of the understand what is happening, why they're being asked to do certain things in their training, why it takes so long in certain situations to see the adaptations that we're looking for. Uh, so that is so cool that you are making a career out of this and have decided to pursue this, um, yeah. which is awesome. And I know it's going to uh, go really well with our conversation today, mm -hmm. which is this concept of fatigue. Uh, fatigue, the bane of every endurance uh, runner, every endurance athlete. Um, so this episode specifically, this concept of what is fatigue? What is happening in our bodies when we become fatigued? How can we become more fatigue resistant? This was inspired by a question that I got. And I was talking about uh, fueling, as you know, the fueling recommendations for long runs and for races in that you need to provide your body with a source of fuel um, that to essentially help you perform at your maximum ability for the time you're trying to run, right? 90 minutes, two hours, whatever it is. And the question I got from this person was, well, if I'm fueling my body on, let's say in a half marathon, let's say if I'm running for, or running for two hours and I'm fueling, why do I still get tired even if I'm putting fuel in my body? And I was, I was like, oh, that's a really great question because um, there's a whole lot that goes into how our bodies function. And we have to remember that we are humans, not machines. We are not perpetual motion machines. So I thought that was a great kind of starting off point to explore this concept of fatigue, fatigue and endurance athletes, specifically understanding more about how our muscle fibers work, how fatigue accumulates, and how we can become more fatigue resistant runners. So take it away, Phil. Um, yeah. Tell us what broadly, right, the million dollar question, mm -hmm. what are we talking about when we talk about fatigue? Yeah, so the, the definition that I have used in my exercise physiology class is fatigue is the inability to maintain a force output or a speed even though you want to. So you can really you can really highlight this if you do something like a maximal exercise test where the the pedals on the bike, the resistance to those pedals get harder and harder and harder. You, you can think all you want. I want to push these pedals harder and harder and harder, but they will eventually become a time where your legs just can't make enough force and your power starts to drop, your your cadence starts to drop, and you can't continue to do that force output. So that's the high-level definition of fatigue, an inability to maintain force or speed even though you want to. So again, that so the question is then, how and why do we become fatigued? <laughs> That's a that's that's probably a a multi million dollar question actually um, in terms of research and all of that but um, there's there's a couple levels of thought to why and where fatigue starts I so our bodies are a feed feedback loop right 
And when we're exercising, what we're doing is we are contracting our muscles a lot. When we're contracting our muscles, we are requiring a lot of energy to produce the force output necessary. And in the process of making that energy, we're creating um, metabolic byproducts that could actually be contributing to fatigue. So people have probably heard the old adage, oh, um, you know, my legs start to burn, right, when, when I'm getting tired or I'm getting close to that fatigue point. And that that's an indicator of fatigue. And I don't think scientists really totally understand where that burning is necessarily coming from. Um, there's a myth out there that lactic acid is causing that burning in your legs. And I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. Um, lac lactate, which is a more proper term for it, is um, actually a very beneficial molecule for us. And we can go over this in, in a little bit more detail as we start to uh, un uncover the layers of this fatigue onion. But um, it's mainly hydrogens and then inorganic phosphate, which I don't expect everybody to really know what that is, but they're, uh, we just call them metabolites. And what they can do is they can actually affect the machinery within your muscle and make that machinery not work as well. And that's really, that's the first step within your muscles of, of basically fatigue is a mechanism of protecting your body from destroying itself. If you never fatigued, then you would have the capability of just ripping your muscles apart and inducing a lot of damage, which would make it so you couldn't do whatever activity you were trying to do anymore. Um, so, so fatigue is a protective mechanism and fatigue is a, a mechanism that starts with the muscle, but then your brain actually senses what's going on in your muscle and your brain can actually say, whoa, we got to shut it down. So your brain kind of acts as like the, the ultimate say in like, well, we're going to damage ourselves if we don't stop, stop from doing what we're doing. So we're going to make everything slow down. So yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be helpful to talk about how our muscle fibers actually work, uh, because understanding how muscle fiber recruitment works, how, you know, our, our muscle fiber types kind of what they specialize in and how they end up fatiguing and kind of handing off the baton to other muscle fibers, like explain how that works. Because, um, when I learned about muscle fibers, the you know, coolest thing that I learned was that you're they're either on or they're off, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have a muscle fiber that contracts halfway. Right. So right. when you're when you're producing different level, different amounts of force, different amounts of output, it essentially comes down to how many individual muscle fibers are contracting at any given time. But individual muscle fibers can then individually fatigue and that that and kind of over time, mm -hmm. um, other things happen. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a little, it's a, again, like all of this is very, com are very complicated interplay between the two, but largely speaking, you have two muscle fiber types within your, within your muscles. You have slow twitch fibers and fast twitch fibers. Your, your slow twitch fibers, and it's kind of a misnomer because they, they still twitch pretty fast, but they are your fatigue resistant fibers. When, when you think about, you know, going out on your long, slow runs, your recovery runs, other things like that, your slow twitch fibers are really what's going to be doing a lot of the work there. They are, um, they have a lot of mitochondria, which are your uh, energy producers of the cell. 
and uh, that makes them extremely fatigue resistant. So type one fibers, if you associate anything with it, they have a lot of mitochondria and we'll, we'll dig into why that's important later and they're fatigue resistant. So there's your type one fibers. Then you have your type two fibers. Your type two fibers you can think of as your um, high power output fibers. So if you're, if you're running um, fairly fast or if you're jumping or if you're sprinting or if you're lifting heavy weights, your type two fibers are going to take a lot of that uh, load because they're a little bit bigger and they can produce a lot more force. Um, however, with great force comes greater fatigue. So uh, these, the way that your type two fibers are making their energy isn't coming from the mitochondria. It's relying on different sources of energy and those sources of energy are finite. So you can think about it as like a, like different gas tanks. Your uh, type two fibers have a lot smaller gas tanks, but it's like jet fuel. And then your type one fibers have massive gas tanks. And that's like uh, your, you know, like your Priuses or your Teslas of the world. Um, so yeah, so, so you have those two. And then your fibers are recruited based on how much force is necessary. Um, it would be really awkward if every time you tried to walk, all of your muscle fibers contracted because then you would have like herky-jerky movements and you would, you know, kind of look like you're doing the robot running down the road. Um, so your, your brain senses how much force output is necessary to do the task that is at hand and will start by recruiting your type one fibers. You have a lot of type one fibers, so it'll recruit like 25% of them, then 50, then 75%, then a hundred percent of them. And then after you get above kind of that one, that hundred percent threshold, then you start to recruit your type two fibers. And your type one fibers are still being recruited. They don't just turn off afterwards, but they're still being recruited. And then your type two fibers are being recruited on top of that to get that extra uh, force output, that extra oomph that you need. So cool. <laughs> I know I just had this image in my head of like, yeah, if all of my muscle fiber, if all of the muscle fibers in my legs contracted simultaneously when I was trying to go out for an easy run, that would be awkward and not an easy run because I would yeah. be producing maximal force out yeah. right? <laughs> and it would probably hurt really bad like a cramp or something like that um, <laughs> because if you just contracted fully all the way, your muscles would be uh, a very, very tight and it's it's not a, not a very comfortable situation to be in. <laughs> I live in New England and it's summer officially. This morning, the sun rose at 5.20 in the morning. What does that mean? It means that sunglasses are now an all-day affair, even for my very, very early morning runners. And now, look, I know some of you do get up before then and get out for your run at like four o'clock in the morning. But by and large, if you're outside running this time of year, you're gonna need something to cover those beautiful face eggs of yours. And you know, my number one sunglasses pick is always going to be a pair of Gooder sunglasses. Super affordable, starting at only $25. They are polarized, no slip, no bounce, so many colors and styles to choose from. Plus, it is June and we are celebrating Pride Month. Gooder has two special rainbow styles where a portion of the proceeds of those two pairs go to the Los Angeles LGBT Center because doing good is a part of their mission, just like it should be for all of us. So whether you're buying a special limited edition pair for Pride Month or you're stocking up on your favorite styles over and over again, now you can get free shipping on Gooder.com using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P for free shipping on your next order of Gooder sunglasses from Gooder.com. Look good, run Gooder.
So obviously, you know, the, the people who listen to this podcast are probably by and large endurance athletes, primarily mm-hmm. endurance runners, although we, I know we have some triathletes as well who listen. So what we're primarily concerned with is figuring out how to improve our fatigue resistance and basically how can we run for longer mm-hmm. and then how can we run faster for longer. So yeah. what is happening if for the endurance athlete, what are we what are the mechanisms by which we can improve our endurance and uh, and and push off that fatigability as much mm-hmm. as possible? Yeah. So so the the whole goal of training, right? Like is to become more fatigue resistant. Um and it as a as a skeletal muscle mitochondrial physiologist, um, I believe that most of that starts with the, the mitochondria. So if, if you're unfamiliar with the mitochondria, or maybe you just have a, a basis of understanding from like a biology class, you'll know the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Um, when I was, when I was first like listening to that, I was like powerhouse, like, oh, it's like really good, you know, like cool. It's like, no, no, no. Like it actually is producing the energy that most of your muscle is using to do contraction. And if we go back to this idea that when we're starting to fatigue, we're producing a lot more hydrogens, those hydrogens are going around and they're actually interfering with our ability of our muscle to contract. So by training, so largely speaking, right, we'll have our uh, lower, slower, lower, lower intensity, slower, longer workouts, like zone two training, if we're thinking about a five zone model. And then we have our interval training, which, you know, can be in, you know, any different myriad of, of things, you know, from sprint interval training to VO2 max training to threshold training, so on and so forth. Um, all of those types of training, every single type of training is going to target your mitochondria. And it'll slightly, it'll target it slightly differently depending on what you're doing. So if our mitochondria our mitochondria are actually the the first place where we buffer hydrogens or get rid of hydrogens out of our muscle, um, the the muscle or the skeletal muscle mitochondria needs a lot of hydrogens in order to produce energy. Um, and I wish I had like a diagram right now. This is kind of making me think of uh, my exercise physiology class. But um, from a high level perspective. Hydrogens are coming from from breaking down uh, your energy sources, and a lot of hydrogens are being produced from that. Those hydrogens can then be taken up into your mitochondria, and they can actually be like put into uh, these two membranes that the mitochondria have. When you put a lot of hydrogens together, since they're positively charged, they want to get away from each other, kind of like magnets. And what we do in our mitochondria is we actually harness that energy by only allowing the hydrogens to go through a little, uh, it actually looks like a turnstile when we look at it from like a molecular standpoint. Um, It's called ATP synthase, and it looks like a little turnstile. And every time a hydrogen goes through it, it turns that turnstile. And then using that mechanical energy, we can actually smash together um, ADP, which is uh, adenosine diphosphate, and inorganic phosphate to make ATP, which is our energy currency of the cell. So we, we harness that hydrogen potential to make more energy within our mitochondria and oxygen is involved in that process. So when you breathe in oxygen, that's actually what's happening is your oxygen is being used at your mitochondria to then make more energy. So you can, you can go out and you can tell people in your running group and stuff now, it's like, hey, you know why we actually have to breathe? 
because we need oxygen to make more energy so we don't fatigue as much. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's one of them. So when we train, like our, like our long, slow distance, people say, oh, zone two training is really good for, for making our mitochondria bigger. So what that means is that your mitochondria expand and take up more of the volume within your muscle and that actually allows you to buffer more hydrogens because there's more space for those hydrogens to go. Um, is it I, mit- let me ask yeah. you, is it mitochondrial? Because i w- thinking about mitochondrial density, right? So if improving mitochondrial density, is mm-hmm. that size and number of mitochondria or is that so both? It's it's a little bit of both. So, so this is... Um, there's a common misconception that the mitochondria are these individual beans that are placed around the muscle. Um, if you look at a muscle cell, it's this big elongated tubular network, right? Your mitochondria actually look like that tubular network as well. Yeah, we're, dro- we're like we're dropping some some knowledge bombs on people today. Um, and what that tubular network does is the pipes get bigger and they connect better. So your mitochondria are actually this really big connected tubular network. And what that allows to do is it allows you to send a signal from one end of your muscle fiber to another end of your muscle fiber like that. So if you start contracting one end of your muscle fiber, the other end is like, okay, we got to make more more ATP because we need more energy and we need to buffer more hydrogens or else we're going to fatigue really fast. So that's kind of what zone two training does is it makes your mitochondria bigger, occupy more space, and then all in all, it allows you to produce more ATP using oxygen and buffering more hydrogens in the process. If we think to our inter- interval training, um, what that actually does, and it it does a little bit of both, it still expands your mitochondria, but it actually makes your mitochondria uh, more functional. So it's like, it's like akin to adding um, more power tools to a construction site. If you have more power tools there, you're able to do more of the work faster. So you add more of these like power tools, the the things that use the oxygen, the ATP synthase that makes more ATP. Um, it allows for more oxygen to be used faster and more ATP to be produced faster. So so both of them are good in slightly different ways, and both of them act to allow you to rely almost purely on oxygen to make your ATP. And the key here is, and going back to that question that that you posed earlier, even though I'm fueling, why do I still get tired? So as soon as you are unable to just use your mitochondria to do, to make the ATP or make the energy that is required for work, you start to rely more on carbohydrates. I'm sure all of us have heard about this, like, oh, I need to fuel with carbohydrates during my run. The challenge with carbohydrates, well, the good thing about carbohydrates is they're a high-octane fuel. The challenge is, is you only have a certain amount in your muscle that you can use at any given time. So if you don't refuel yourself, you are minimizing the amount that's going to be in there just based off of your diet and your training status. And if you're exercising higher than you know what you can purely rely on your uh your mitochondria for then you're going to be digging into that uh glucose store that's within your muscle and that's going to go away pretty fast um so why we fuel and why we uh eat during our you know 
long training sessions or our races is because we want to give our body, our muscle, a drip of carbohydrates because that's what we're actually relying on when we're racing or doing something pretty hard. Even when you're exercising at like, uh, you know, 50% or higher, you're still relying a heck of a lot on carbohydrates, um, which is something that I think is a, another misconception that some people have is like, oh, well, if I'm like, you know, only exercising at 50%, like I'm relying primarily on fat. It's like, yes, that's true. But that doesn't mean you're only relying on fat. You're still relying somewhat on carbohydrates. So as soon as you start to dig into those carbohydrates, you're a ticking time bomb for I'm going to run out of carbohydrates. And then your mitochondria can't buffer all those hydrogens that are required. So then those hydrogens start to build up in your cell. And then that's where we start to see things like uh, bicarbonate and bicarbonate buffering being more important for that fatigue resistance. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about like, like people talk about bicarbonate loading and using bicarbonate to buffer more. Um, so that's just a supplement that's, that people have used, but essentially what it's doing is it's, it's trapping those hydrogens and allowing you to breathe those hydrogens out. And that gets, uh, that gets uh, upregulated with exercise as well. This is vastly cool. <laughs> and so what I'm hearing you say, I did not know that about the shape of our mitochondria. So what I'm hearing you say is that when we're talking about fatigue, it's really, you really focused on not how we get tired, but how we can produce more energy more efficiently mm -hmm. to prolong our ability to do the work that we're trying to do. Yep. And that at lower intensities, we're making certain adaptations with the size and amount of the mitochondria that we have so that we can make more energy and buffer more hydrogen ions. Mm -hmm. And that at higher intensities, we're improving I get what do you call it, the efficiency, the ability of our mitochondria to, you know, just do better work, more work. Yeah. Um, and that I mean, you know, and, and I think this is where I think a lot of a lot of endurance athletes really struggle is because, you know, when the goal and honestly, not everybody's goal, but the goal of most of the listeners of this show is going to be to run faster for longer distances, mm -hmm. right? They want to go farther and they want to go faster. Mm -hmm. And what typically ends up happening is that the traditional recreational athlete, right, um, ends up doing a heck ton of work in this higher intensity zone. So we talk about the five zone heart rate model. You know, if we're doing a whole lot of work in kind of upper zone three, right around our lactate threshold zone four zone five running fast to get fast we are only maximizing one specific type of of qualities of our mitochondria mm -hmm. when the true endurance comes from the ability to maximize sounds like the size and number which is primarily derived from that low and slow activity mm -hmm. yeah it's um it's, it's a combination of both, right? That's why, you know, you don't see any elite athlete really anymore just doing one or the other. Uh, the challenge, though, with doing too high of intensity too often is that the amount of fatigue that you accumulate um, from a day-to-day-to-day -day -day basis is exponentially higher than if you're actually doing proper zone two training. So so one of the benefits of proper zone two training, and I say it properly because a lot of people think they're doing zone two and then they're like high zone three, um, is that you can do a you can accumulate a lot of volume and not a lot of fatigue. Like you, if you did a zone two workout 
for an hour to an hour and a half and you were like a moderately trained athlete, you should be able to do that the next day at the same intensity and same pace and feel generally pretty good. If you couldn't do like an hour and then come back and do an hour the next day at the same pace, you probably went too hard. Um, and that's always something that I have to, you know, tell people is like, it's okay to back off a little bit. You're still going to get a lot of the benefits even. So for example, right, if you have like your, your perfect zone two training is at 130 beats per minute, but you're at 125 for the most part, you're 99% of the way there. But if you go over by five, that's actually where you can start to accumulate more and more fatigue. So it's actually more detrimental to you to go over on that heart rate than it is to just be a little bit under, even though from an ego perspective, I know it's, it's, you're like, I can't go under my zone two, you know, that zone two heart rate or else I'm not going to be maximizing the benefits. But if you start to think about it from a consistency and specificity point of view, that's, that's how I recommend is like, you want to do a lot of the zone two stuff and then, and then sprinkle in the interval stuff, the threshold stuff in certain you know, portions of, of your training blocks, um, because both of those combination is really going to maximize your mitochondrial size and your mitochondria's ability to buffer hydrogens as well as your mitochondrial function. So your mitochondria's ability to use oxygen to make ATP, because the, the, one of the best predictors of endurance performance is where that, that transition point to, uh, or from relying on primarily mitochondrial or mitochondria for your energy to glycolysis, that's like one of the best predictors of performance. And that's what we hear is like uh, our uh, lactate threshold to ventilatory threshold to um, other things like that. So you want to push that as high as you possibly can, because that's going to uh, allow you to not rely on your glycogen or your glucose or your carbohydrates. And that's going to, or as much, which is going to give you a longer time before you empty that gas tank. So let's talk about the the kind of, as you said um, before, when we were chatting uh, before the episode started, you know, the body, we're really talking about dimmer switches instead of things are, that are being, you know, on or off. Mm-hmm. And talking about the way that different energy systems, we've talked about this before on the show, hopefully, if, you know, if somebody's a regular listener, these concepts aren't necessarily foreign, although the detail that we're going into is probably going to be new material for you. But like, I'm hoping that you understand about zone two, you know, your aerobic threshold. And we've talked about, you know, aerobic, um, gly- you know, aerobic uh, energy production versus uh, glycolytic, you know, your anaerobic energy production, mm-hmm. those types of things. But talk to us about this concept of fatigue as it relates to um, accumulation, right? Mm. Because you said, you know, it, you accumulate less fatigue at lower intensities, right? So if we have an athlete who's doing, you know, uh, let's say we're doing a lovely little base building block, most of the training in this block, we're going to be in zone two, right? So below our aerobic threshold, well, maybe sprinkle in some other stuff, right? Um, but that they should reasonably be able to complete an hour of zone two on Tuesday, and then an hour of zone two on Wednesday, and then maybe even an hour of zone two on Thursday, mm-hmm. and feel pretty much the same the whole time. But if we did an hour of zone two on Wednesday, sorry, on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, we did a lactate threshold workout, on Thursday, we would be tired mm-hmm. from what we did yesterday. So. Talk to us about how fatigue accumulates and what we mean when we say about talking about 
recovery because yeah. I think somebody might listen to this podcast and say, well, it sounds like as soon as everything's kind of buffered, I should be fine. Why would I still be tired the next day? Yeah. So there's a, there's a few interesting molecular aspects that are going on there. So the first one, and this is, this is where, uh, the, the concept of, of eating enough carbohydrates is really important because if we, if we think about, um, like the bioenergetics, you start with ATP production at your mitochondria, but your mitochondria are actually using substrates that are coming from fats and from carbohydrates. So you're doing some level of breakdown of carbohydrates, even when you're doing your zone two training. Um, and if you're glycogen levels, so the stored amount of glucose or carbohydrate within your muscle, if that goes low enough, that's actually like highly associated with, um, like with severe fatigue. So it'd be like if you had, you know, your jet fuel and your, uh, you know, like, like normal unleaded 85, uh, in your gas tank and you were relying on both of them to make a speed of 70 miles per hour with your car, then all of a sudden you run out of jet fuel. If you run out of jet fuel, your car is not going to be able to produce the same force output anymore. And remember our definition of fatigue is not being able to produce the same force output anymore. So your car is going to have to slow down in order to get to a point where all of the energy that is being produced is coming from your mitochondria. Um, so over time, this accumulation effect of fatigue could be partially based on, uh, the depletion of glycogen. So for example, if you did, you know, your zone two and then, you know, say, like, oh, I forgot to refuel like right after my zone two, cause it was super busy night. You know, like the kids were had, had stuff going on and I barely had enough to get a granola bar in or something like that. Then you came back and you did a hard threshold training day, which is going to be highly reliant on that glucose then you're probably digging yourself a deeper hole. And then the next day when you come back, you're like, oh my gosh, my legs are are heavy. It could be partially due to the fact that you don't have enough glycogen within your muscles. Um, so, so that's one of them. Another thing when we're talking about fatigue is exercise is, exercise in the right doses is, um, is very beneficial, right? Because your body wants to adapt to the stresses that are placed upon it. But if you put too much stress for example, I mean, it's like, if you're thinking about like a, like a bridge, right. Or something like that, if you had too many cars on the bridge, then the bridge could potentially collapse. But if you have one car at a time, there's going to be a little bit of a flex and totally fine. Uh, bridges can't automatically reconstruct themselves, but our bodies can. So it essentially be like a regenerative bridge where every time a car goes by the bridge gets stronger. So then all of a sudden the bridge is like super beefy and, any car that drives over it can, uh, you know, it can, it can handle. Um, but the problem is, is if you had too much stress all the time, then your body is going to break down. And that comes in the form of damage to things like, like your mitochondria can actually get damaged if you exercise too much. There was a study where they, um, took, I think some high level trained athletes, but then they did like a week of super high intensity interval training. And granted, I don't think anyone on this podcast is really going to would really be, be doing this, but it was like two a days of high intensity interval in the morning, like VO2 max, and then sprint, sprint interval training in the afternoon. And they did that five days straight. And what they measured is they measured uh, mitochondrial function afterwards, and they showed that it declined. 
So it actually went down because so much damage was being accumulated within your mitochondria and your your body just couldn't build enough proteins to to repair those those bridges right within your mitochondria. So eventually the function goes down. But luckily after some rest and proper nutrition, the mitochondria bounced right back. Um, so so that's the idea of accumulated fatigue is that over time um, you're you're damaging your body. And your body is working as fast as it can to replace all those damaged building blocks. And if you don't give your body enough time to recover, then you're not going to get that uh, super compensation, that super beefy bridge, right, that we were talking about just a second ago. Um, so so that's, it's, it's, training is always the balance between damaging your, your mitochondria and your in yourself through training and then recovering adequately so you can bounce up your your performance so it's kind of like it's kind of like the stock market right the stock market isn't a straight line it's bouncing up and down but it's trending upwards and if you're doing enough stress and enough rest then you should get that same trend I'm imagining this like single lane bridge that turns into this like eight lane, you know, super highway with yeah. proper proper recovery, right? Yeah, which yeah. is such a cool cool concept. Um, and so one of the things I also want to talk about is this concept of cumulative fatigue in a training cycle, because mm-hmm. that's something that you know I think anybody who has trained properly in a training cycle or has coached anybody uh, talks about. Yeah, you know, in peak week of marathon training, like you're as fatigued you have the highest level of cumulative fatigue from your training cycle right Mm -hmm. the work you've been doing over the past three four maybe even five months of your training cycle um that it should obviously include a variety of training stimuli throughout the week right long runs easy days maybe some hard days you have cutback weeks yada 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 Mm -hmm. but the long story short is by peak week or you know peak um peak volume of your training cycle, you are in the state of the highest level of cumulative fatigue, which you then taper into the race to shed that fatigue, keep the fitness, none of the fatigue. Talk mm-hmm. to us about how that works, because this is a really tough concept for some runners to understand, this concept of uh, a cycle, a cycle accumulating fatigue intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's really it's really quite similar to how we would, you know, how I just described it, right? Is um you're again, the whole goal of the training is the stress that you're putting upon your body. The rest is where you get the adaptation. So, as you, you know, continue to build, you know, like your your long runs for example, over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks, you're going to be accumulating damage to your bridge. Your body takes time to have to rebuild that bridge for it to be, you know, that eight lane highway that we were just talking about, right? So so the, the point is though, is that without that stress, your body your body doesn't have any reason to adapt. And that's the whole point of training, right? Is and this is why I always recommend to people is like, don't start with like, and maybe we'll talk about this on another podcast. Don't start with the Norwegian method of training if you've never actually done training before, because that's going to be such a high stress that after your body, you know, repairs itself, you're already going to have that eight lane bridge that it's going to be really hard to stress it afterwards. You'd have to put so many semi trucks or dump trucks or whatever it is onto that bridge to get any amount of stress for it to get repaired. So, 
I always, you know, it's like when, and this is why coaches are necessary or, you know, really in tune people for self-coaching because you want to start with a stress that is going to uh, depress your performance a little bit over time that you can recover from afterwards. Because if you continue to stress yourself and I had a little bit of an issue with this. Uh, I did, I did a 50 K my first 50 K two weeks ago. And afterwards, like I was, I, I was pretty sore, but I was like, oh, I feel pretty good. I'm going to start training again. And um, one of the posts that I really appreciated that you just put out was this idea of like uh, a depressed immune function afterwards. And I, I got sick. I got sick afterwards because I know seven hours of, of working out like was, you know, one of those things. My bridge probably had a bunch of holes in it. The bricks were like thrown out of it, all of that sort of stuff. And then on top of that, I was studying for my defense. So I was stressed on that. So it's just this accumulation of all this stress that eventually I think my bridge fell down for a little while. Um, and it forced me to lay in my bed for for three days just being like super sick. Um, but that's what happened. So it's that balance, right, between uh, enough stress that you're going to be able to accumulate or going to be able to readapt from when you take that taper week. Because that's the point of the taper week is if you've accumulated a lot of fatigue you have to take a lot of time to dig dig back out of it to repair everything. So then, if you've done this correctly, you're entering that marathon, that half marathon, whatever it is. Um, you should be as recovered as you've ever been, and actually to the point where if your performance was you know kind of lower to start, it should be higher. So that's kind of the point, right? Sometimes it takes like you know three months to accumulate that enough fatigue. Sometimes it takes a week. Like for me, like sometimes I can dig myself into a hole for a week and then I have to take two days and then I come back and I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. So yeah, that I think is that is that kind of what you were getting at when, you know, when we're thinking about that idea of accumulated fatigue? Yeah, I, and I think because, you know, we tend to you know, I want to say demonize fatigue as it's a, if it's a bad thing, right? Like, oh, I'm so fatigued, like, oh, I'm so tired, right? And but to communi- to communicate that the fatigue is kind of a central feature. It's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature mm-hmm. of a properly periodized training cycle mm-hmm. that we actually want you to, you know, we want to break you so we can build you back stronger, <laughs> yeah. right? Not, not, not hurt you, right? Not, not actually cause, you know, catastrophic damage, but that is how you improve. And I, you know, people I think get really um, kind of anxious and this isn't, a, we're not talking about kind of the psychological aspects of fatigue here, but you know, I, I think all of us have probably had this experience of being in peak weeks of our training cycle and everything kind of feeling a little bit harder than it, it, it did two months ago or a month ago. And maybe some of the paces that we're hitting aren't quite where we would hope they would be, even though our effort or heart rate's in the right place and have to remind yourself, Hey, you know what? You've been training for this one race for like three months and and you ran X number of miles this week and you're really tired right now, right? Mm-hmm. That fatigue accumulates over time because you haven't given yourself that break and that's okay. And that's like the point of mm-hmm. the training cycle. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it, it's really hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around, right? Because, you know, especially, um, you know, like, I'm I'm a type A individual. I'm always like, oh, I got to keep pushing harder. I got to keep making more improvements, all of this. And sometimes it's, you know, it gets to the point, right, where you're just like, oh, and now I'm not doing anything. Oh my gosh, like, like I, I'm going to lose all my gains and all that. So no, 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 your body is repairing itself 
and and we can go we can go into like the rate of adaptation or d the d adaptation um it's not as fast as as a lot of people want to think it is because there's a lot of research out there that's like oh well we put people on bed rest for 21 days and they totally lost everything it's like you're not going to be on bed rest like you're going to be moving around you're going to be doing a little bit of running like like in in all actuality that's what your body needs at that point for those construction crews to come in and rebuild you better so don't be afraid of it (laughs) i want to talk about finding the limits of our current capacity i know one of the things that you are um focusing on professionally and one of the passions that you have is you know using how do we test right how do Mm -hmm. we figure out how can we take knowledge and information and data points and turn them into actionable concepts but um talking about specifically the concept of aerobic decoupling which uh, I get uh, a lot of questions about. And this is, and I I don't wanna spoil it, you probably know a vast uh, great deal more than I do about this concept, but essentially um, something that allows us to understand where the current limit of our, let's say aerobic endurance is, or something that could help us understand the current limit of our anaerobic capacity. Tell us about that. Yeah, so so this is actually a concept that I think is more popular within the uh, training realm than it is the research realm. So I actually had to Google this last night, aerobic decoupling. Um, but the concept is the same. So within uh, some exercise intensities, we see a decoupling of our heart rate from our power output. And this is what we call in the in the research area uh cardiac drift so if you if you maintained i I always go back to cycling just because it's a little bit more controlled Um, but from a running perspective if say you were able to run eight minute miles on a given day and your heart rate went up to 130 and then it just stayed at 130 for the entirety of your run there's no aerobic decoupling or cardiac drift that's going on however you could have a day where you're fatigued or it's hot or it's humid or you're dehydrated or something is going on where you're running that eight minute miles and your heart rate at uh, 30 minutes is 120 like we were talking about normally but then 30 more minutes into it it's at 130 and then 30 more minutes into it it's at 140. this is the idea of uh, cardiac drift or aerobic decoupling and it's an indicator that your body is no longer able to establish a level of physiological homeostasis or physiological balance. And that would be an indicator to me that say if you were trying to do zone two training, you're going too hard for the day. Because the whole point of zone two training is to maintain some level of physiological balance for an extended period of time. And if you're seeing things like cardiac out or cardiac drift or aerobic decoupling it's an indicator that you're probably going a bit too hard um because your heart has to continually work harder to deliver enough oxygenated blood to your muscle that's where all the, the oxygen is being used is within your mitochondria so some for some reason on that day your your body just isn't able to maintain that balance so dial it back a little bit um, that's, that's always what I recommend to people is dial it back. It's totally okay. You're going to have days where you're fatigued. Like, you know, maybe, um, 
maybe for some reason on that day, since you are so fatigued, you're actually recruiting more, more different muscle fibers, like your type 2A fibers and your type 2X fibers. And that's requiring, um, you know, differences in where you're getting your energy from. Uh, that could definitely be one one way. Uh, your type 2 fibers are a little bit less efficient too, so they might be using more oxygen, um, which could then cause that cardiac drift to start to occur. Um, is that kind of what you were getting at in terms of like yeah. what people should be aware of? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I always I call it cardiac drift, and then it's funny. I think the cardiac, uh, the aerobic decoupling is more of like a, I see it more in like the triathlon world and and that kind of stuff. And and so for me, you know, thinking about cardiac drift in the general you know, kind of recommendation that I have, um, is that cause people always want to, sometimes people ask me questions and they don't want to hear the answer. They just want me to tell them what they are looking for. Yeah. Right. They're like, um, I'll give you, and I get a ton of questions about easy effort running zone two running suburb threshold running, which are all the same thing. Um, because that's a lot of what I focus on as a coach and as a, as a coach, as an educator, but I get questions about, can't do I have to slow down if my heart rate goes past my aerobic threshold when I'm on my easy effort runs? And um, yeah, I mean, you do, right? And so, and, and typically I see this with a lot of people who are building or rebuilding their endurance for a you know, for the first time, right? So if you have a, a novice runner or somebody who's coming back, you know, maybe they've literally never run for longer than an hour in their entire lives and they are training for something that now requires them to run for an hour, even 30 minutes, right? Everybody, we all kind of start at different places and they say, well, I can run for an hour and, and, and have everything be where it should be. My effort feels correct. My heart rate's in the right place. My pace is relatively, you know, consistent, constant. Um, and, but when I reach the hour mark, my effort seems to go up. My heart rate seems to go up, even if I'm fueling and hydrating. That's always my first question. Are you hydrating? Are you fueling? Right? So then, and then I think the logical conclusion is be like, you sounds like you may have reached the current limit of your ability to stay in homeostasis aerobically. So what does that mean in order to stay in the proper intensity zone? You need to reduce the output, AKA slow down. And that's how we extend our endurance out, right? Yep. Little by little. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree with that. It's, there's a time and a place, you know, to say push through that. Like say if you were doing like a marathon race pace training or, you know, something along those lines. Because in the marathon, you're not just going to be like, oh, my heart rate's over 130. I better slow down. But when you're doing that that base building, right, we were, we were just talking, if you're going over that aerobic, that aerobic threshold, you're going to just start to accumulate um, exponentially more fatigue. Uh, to the extent I was, I just, I have a paper pulled up right now that looked at um, the amount of fatigue that was accumulated. If you went from, say, if your if your zone zone two delineation is your aerobic threshold, and then your uh, zone three delineation is like your lactate threshold two or whatever you want to call it, um, if you if you transition from like zone two to zone three, you know, you accumulate maybe like two to three times more fatigue compared to zone one, zone two. But if you if you go above that, it's like four to five times higher. So you're just going to dig yourself into a deeper, deeper hole. And the whole point of training is to get better at performance rather. And that requires consistency over time. That's oh, that's like one of my big things that I try to preach to people is it's better to stay consistent and go a little bit easier than it is to be like, oh, I just set a, you know, new Strava record or I, you know, like got this king of the mountains or whatever it is. It's like. That's cool, but then you were sick for three weeks, and now you're starting from square one again. Um, so, 
I really recommend to people, and I, that's why I'm like, that's why I, I love the way that you tell people that is like, if you're doing that aerobic base building, it's okay to slow down a little bit. And it's okay. It like, I, for example, I was sick the last two, like the last week, and I did a run for two minutes, walk for a minute until my heart rate came back down for 30 minutes yesterday. Um, it, it's okay to do that. You're still gonna, you're still gonna build. Um, from that and uh, you're just you're potentially doing yourself a disservice though by going too hard too often and there are some people who are super resilient and can do that for you know maybe like six months or something like that but then you potentially speaking from experience you can run into stress fractures you can run into you know chronic fatigue syndrome you can dig yourself into a big hole where you're chronically sick so it's that it's coming from a place of I don't want people to to be in the same place that I was you know when I was training and everything so Talk to us a bit about um, our anaerobic capacity, right? Because if we're saying, you know, okay, obviously one of the things I preach is, and I'm wearing my aerobic monster sweatshirt, right? If you want to be a great endurance athlete, you got to turn yourself into an aerobic monster, right? You want to be aerobically just absolutely bonkers, efficient, huge aerobic capacity, right? I can go for days and days, not literally, maybe literally, depending on how talented you are, right? <laughs> right? Relying primarily on my aerobic energy systems. Mm -hmm. But there are a ton of situations as performance-based athletes where we are going to want to maximize our ability to perform with a significant anaerobic contribution. Mm -hmm. um, although, as you said, that type of energy production and that type of work is extraordinarily fatiguing what is the best way we can approach and not from like a training volume standpoint or training load standpoint but what are the benefits and how would we go about improving our anaerobic capacity yeah i mean like we kind of talked earlier and we won't go into like the nitty-gritty of like oh what intervals are best for this but um it that interval training is what is going to help you get better at utilizing your uh anaerobic stores of of energy right and um this is another thing i, I was kind of looking up so the way that they actually test it in in the research field is by doing these things called wingate tests um wingate tests are 30 seconds as hard as you can possibly go um they are probably the most miserable test you can do i've done i i was a demo guy for uh, a conference that i went to and they were like yeah you're going to do four Wingate tests in a row and we're going to measure your your VO2 and your muscle oxygen and your heart rate. So I just went. Do you get hazard pay for that? I, I, I should have asked for it. I was like, you know, it's like, first of all, get the EMT on board because I might be passing out here. But I just went as hard as I could the first the first interval. And I like I. I had a headache afterwards because uh, I, I don't actually know the mechanism behind why I had a headache, but it was terrible. So I only got to three and I was like, guys, I got, I can't do it anymore. But um, the way that they, the way that they actually say what your anaerobic capacity is, is based on that test and how high your power output is at the beginning and then how much your power actually uh, declines throughout. So there's like a ratio of, you know, of, of how much your, your, your power output declines, but your, your anaerobic stores, the importance of those, I think if we focus on the importance, then people can kind of wrap their mind around why they might want to do some of this anaerobic style training is whenever you're doing something that requires like, uh, you know, say like running up a hill or like short punchy movements that like surges within a race or like passing somebody or really anything that is going to require more uh, power output 
than just a constant, you know, drip like you would see. So hills are a perfect example of that. Um, you're going to start to dig into your anaerobic fuel capacity. And like we were talking about with like glycogen and carbohydrates, that anaerobic fuel capacity is, uh, is what's the word I'm looking for, is finite. So you only have so much of it throughout the race. And this is where, you know, like you've, you've probably seen like track, like people who are in, in track, they're like the kickers or the ones that are like, I'm just going to go out hard the entire time. Those people who go out hard the entire time don't really have that much of an anaerobic capacity. So they're like, I gotta, I gotta make sure that these guys deplete their entire anaerobic capacity before we get to the finish line. So I can win. That's like the Elliot Kipchoge's of the world, right? Like, the, like he can run, you know, he's the, just the fastest in general, but he can just run for forever. Whereas like a, a Matthew Centrowitz, right? He, he won because he just sits, sit and kicked. So, so that's like, that's kind of like the importance, right? Is if you want that, you know, like kicking ability or like those last little surges where you can like, you know, overtake somebody, um, you know, when they're, you know, hopefully depleted their anaerobic stores, you're trying to overtake them. Um, so, so that could be some of the benefit to doing the, the, a little bit more of that anaerobic or that interval style of training. You do have to be careful though, because it does accumulate a lot of fatigue. Um, so, so use those sparingly. Um, something that could be beneficial to people who are wanting to try to uh, get their power out output higher is a little bit of strength training too. Um, because if you think about what, where, what the way that I think about the strength training is that the stronger you are, so if you can squat 400 pounds or something like that, if you're running, you're probably only doing a power out, you know, an output of, of 30, 40 pounds, or, you know, maybe your body weight or something like that. So the stronger you are, the lower the percentage that you're actually doing for your maximal contraction on every step. Um, so that's going to uh, help your aerobic capacity. That's why people get more efficient with strength training. But it's also going to uh, potentially increase that anaerobic sprint capacity, because once you start to actually unleash it, you're going to be doing that 400 pounds of power output, and then you're going to be faster. So that's kind of how I, I view it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, yeah, thinking about, you know, race tactics and all of that. And I think even for, you know, somebody who maybe isn't looking to to execute a strategic performance, but one where it's like, I just want to have a finishing kick, right? I want, I want the last mile of my marathon or my half marathon to be the fastest. I want to be able to sprint to the finish. I want to be able to kick it in, in the last 0.1 of my 5k and having that anaerobic capacity is what allows you to do that. But I also want to finish up with something that you, you kind of mentioned off the cuff as we were chatting before this episode about kind of earning the right to different different kinds of training and racing right and because I said before you know a lot of a lot of recreational runners tend to do a whole ton of training in a moderate or high intensity zone even when they are training for a primarily aerobic endurance focused event right um and that some of the sexiest flashiest fanciest training is not going to be appropriate for everybody um, until you have earned the right to add that into your training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, the, so a little bit of context for everybody. So I was, uh, part of that high school, um, 
high school cross country team. And one of the things that the coach did was, um, you know, when anybody can join the, the cross country team, but in order to actually go out and race, you had to be able to run um, a three mile loop in a certain amount of time. And it wasn't anything that was like, you know, crazy, uh, crazy challenging in terms of, um, you know, the distance and the time, but it was something where it was like, it was this idea that you have to build up enough of a base in order to then start to input or do more of that like speed training or um, the interval style training and, and other things like that. So um, I, I really like the and the great thing about like I, I know it, it doesn't feel great in the moment when you're first starting, right? When you go out for your first run and you're like, oh my gosh, everything I do, my lungs are burning, my legs are burning, everything. I'm speaking from experience because I took like uh, three years off during my PhD to try like to, to do my PhD work and not train for anything. And then when I got back, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get it back. But the good news is, is that you can get it back. And the, the whole goal again of training should be to do the least amount of work that's going to elicit the greatest amount of change. It's really easy to get all gung ho about, oh, I'm, you know, I just saw the, I'm going back to the Norwegian method. I just saw the Ingebrigtsen brothers do this crazy threshold day. I'm going to start putting that in. But at the end of the day, you got to do what's best for you. And most likely, if, especially if you haven't been training that much, just doing something like, like walking more throughout the day or doing a, a walk run throughout the day is going to start to develop uh, that that bridge into a more robust bridge like you might you might right now you might just have a dirt road going across a bridge right over a ravine but by doing those easy workouts and recovering from them and being consistent you can make that you know like that that skinny wooden bridge into a two-lane highway pretty fast then once you start to get to that two-lane highway then you can start to do <coughs> more of the uh more of like the 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 high risk high reward stuff of the the interval training and and all of that and it's it's not because um I, I you know i i would want to hold back anybody it's because i want people to be the most successful they can be and have as most longevity in in the sport as they possibly can um so that's yeah that's exactly that's where that idea came from is you know like it's a lot of easy stuff is is good in the beginning. And plus, that's going to make your mental headspace a lot better and be more confident when you actually get to that point. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing I think there's nothing more demoralizing than jumping into a workout that is so far above your ability. And I'll, I'll you know, and I, this is and like like you said, like this is not I'm not trying to tell you you can't do something or it's something like I'm withholding things from you. You know, I would never tell a novice you know, somebody who's never been in the gym before and never lifted before in their life to go load up at 400 pounds on a squat rack and do that squat. That would be completely inappropriate. Just the same way that somebody's running 15 miles a week but wants to run a marathon, to ask them to do 16 miles at marathon pace in a 20 mile long run would be, it'd be absolutely beyond their ability, right? I mean, even if they could complete it, it would probably require significant amounts of recovery and derail them from race day. Um, and, you know, with all good things that with endurance, I'd say it takes longer than you probably want it to take. But when you actually get to the place where you're like, when you look back and say, yeah, it didn't seem like I actually took that long at all. So be patient. All these things will come to you in time. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I think people have a tendency to overestimate their fitness, especially at the beginning. Um, so that's why it's good, especially at the beginning to have like a coach or somebody to, you know, bounce ideas off of, at least that in my opinion, I'm always somebody who I always overestimate how fit I am. And it's, uh, until recently, it's really kind of bit me in the, bit me in the butt a few times, um, with a lot of injuries and all of that. So it's just, it's speaking from experience. It's like, how would I do it if I would, were to start it again? And slow and steady wins the race, right? The old tortoise and the hare adage, it still holds true. (coughs) Develop your fatigue resistance, maximize that endurance, become an aerobic monster, and you will get to where you want to go. Dr. Phil Batterson, thank you so much for your time today. This is absolutely fascinating. I know we already have like two more possible topics lined up, so I know we'll have you back on here. But uh, tell us how people can learn more about you, find, follow, potentially work with you. Mm -hmm. What are you doing these days? Yeah, so um, I run a uh, a new business uh, called Critical Oxygen. You can find me at Critical O2 on Instagram. Um, I do a lot of posts about like the deep physiology of training and everything, but I'm also interested in working with people one on one. Um, so <clears throat> if you uh, are interested in getting in contact with me, maybe doing some physiological testing, maybe doing some field testing, or getting like bouncing some ideas. Hey, this is my training plan. How could I tweak it, you know, to my to my level? Uh, feel free to DM me, and we can we can work something out from there. Uh, I just graduated uh, from OSU, so uh, I, I'm really putting a lot of my efforts into this now, um, and I really want to help people get better with their uh, maximizing their endurance performance. So feel free to reach out to me, even if it's just some simple questions. Just shoot me shoot me a DM, and I'm more than happy to help people. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing your knowledge. I look forward to our future conversations. Yeah, thank you for having me, Elizabeth. This has been so much fun. I, I absolutely love talking uh, you know, to, to very intelligent coaches and everything, and I hope that uh, we can make a few more podcasts in the, in the future. It'll happen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.